Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V-Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V-Radio. I'm sorry for the slightly uh, delayed start, um, but we are uh, experiencing some mild technical difficulties. Um, in the event that uh, I can't get this call connected via Skype, then we're just going to go ahead and uh, reconnect via the landline phone line. Um, once again, uh, if this is your first time tuning in to V-Radio, please check out my website, v-radio.org. Uh, there you will find lots of archive shows like this one. Um, in addition, you can go to my must-see TV list and see a list of free documentaries to watch on the Internet that I advise to anyone to check out. Um, in addition to that, if you like what you hear on V-Radio, this is a listener-supported effort. And as kind of an independent journalist, I'd like your support. Consider giving a donation to V-Radio. So all of that said, um, it looks like uh, Skype is going to give me some trouble. So I am going to go ahead and try to connect uh, this person via their landline. Um, and I'm going to apologize to everybody. Uh, I thought this would be worked out by now, but for some reason it isn't. Um, sometimes Skype, when you uh, send a friend request does not acknowledge it right away, and that is essentially what is happening here. So, one moment. Okay. Power tube, how may I help you? Hello? Hello? Hi, PowerTube. How may I help you? Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, could you connect me to Doyle, please? There's, uh, for some reason, something going wrong with his Skype. Yes, hold on. Hello? Hey, Neil, what do you got? Yeah, uh, what have you got? Well, for some reason, the uh, Skype isn't working, so we could just go ahead and do the interview through here. You're actually live now on V-Radio, so welcome to V-Radio. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I'm sorry that the Skype clunked out, but it seems uh, sometimes those things happen. We can't have control of everything, obviously. <laughs> no, that's what we're hoping to do with science someday. First of all, I want to welcome you to V-Radio. Uh, I had actually looked into your power tube a long time ago, but I think the best way you know, for the audience to learn about it, first of all, um, let me ask you a question that I ask everyone I bring on to the show. Uh, what was the moment in your life that made you decide to go from someone who was part of the world to someone who was trying to make it better? Essentially, I guess for you, what made you decide to get into alternative energy? Well, my previous uh, corporation was involved in installing power plants around the world. I either designed them or I worked on them or did turnkey job. Um, one day, when I was installing a power plant where there happened to be five other power plants, uh, it struck me that there was a lot of power plants here that didn't have filters. And I researched the reason of why the filters were necessary. I knew what the necessity was, but I was hoping that uh, uh, maybe I'd come up with a different answer at that time. And it turned out to be that the filters are necessary to keep certain type of nitride gases out of, uh, out of the atmosphere. However, uh, the people on site who own these uh, plants normally don't, keep the filters on because uh, 
the filters, when they're off, uh, allow more power because there's no back pressure. And uh, the uh, preference was to save that money. So at this time, there were several turbines going at one time, but the surrounding area was black and dark brown. And in those days, you weren't too sure what caused certain things, and you had heard about uh, environmental pollution, but most of us didn't want to accept it. Right. As it, tur- as it turned out, this was my proof, because I, when I told them about this, the uh, answer was, well, we don't have to uh, put the filters on right now. I said, no, you better get the filters on. Because that keeps it. What happened when the gases combined in that area and went to the atmosphere, they came down in the form of acid rain, and that's what made everything black and brown. In that particular area, uh, everything was killed off more or less. So I had uh, I stopped to think, and the thought was, hey, I'm part of the problem. What are you going to do about it? Well, I remember as a child, my folks were missionaries, and my dad caught me throwing a piece of paper on the floor. And uh was on the roadway, rather, and he said, pick that up. And I said, what for? There's a lot of paper around here. He said, you don't be one of them. This is not our world. This was our creator's world. We're here to take care of it. We're not here to dirty it up. And those thoughts rung in my ear for... I guess the whole day, day and a half, and even I couldn't even sleep at night thinking about it. So I decided to sell my regular corporation and form a new one. First, I had to figure out what I wanted to do, and what I wanted to do was really uh, find a way to provide clean, low-cost energy. And as I studied it more and more, I realized that the people that I wanted to help, who were basically third-world countries, were sitting on their own energy. The only trouble was it hadn't been converted yet. In some cases, it had been converted with what uh, we call the uh, uh, geothermal power plants. But the geothermal power plants use water. And water is becoming scarce. And also the fact that uh, the water is recycled through the rock gathers up much more minerals, and the minerals as they weigh heavier, filter on down into the underwater rivers that uh, a lot of places use for their drinking water. Um, These are the aquifer contamination problems. I kept studying the situation, and I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if we could just use the heat and not have to use the water? So I studied other methods for almost three years before I decided uh, what to do, and that was to develop the PAR tube. But it wasn't as easy as I thought, and I would used up a lot of my money uh, from the sale of my previous corporation, uh, studying other uh, technologies available like wind and uh, solar and that sort of thing. <clears throat> I came across the solution Remembering, as I was a child also, there was a lake I used to swim across. And I went on to the other side of this lake uh, a lot back and forth. And uh, one time I went across with a pair of fins and masks. Uh, my parents got me. I think it was a birthday gift. And 
I was diving around this lake in, in Guatemala when all of a sudden I felt something hot hit my foot. And uh wondered what the heck that was. I brought my I brought my foot back out immediately and noticed that I didn't have any pressure on one leg. And I thought, what is going on? So I kind of bobbled up to the surface. When I got there, I pulled my fins up, and I noticed one was curled back. And uh, a gentleman that owned one of the homes along the lake, uh, when I went into the edge to uh, to see what was going on, told me, what you have just hit was a fumarole. You're lucky you didn't lose your leg. And then he explained to me what a fumarole was, and that's basically an outlet of very hot water from the lake that's been uh, heated by a volcano. And I thought, wow, at that age, I was about 15, I think, I thought, you know, why don't they harness this stuff? I mean, they could use a lot of power. And uh, that stayed with me also. And these things combined to give me the idea that what I had to do was tackle the problem of how do we get that heat to combine into electricity and not hurt the atmosphere. That was basically it when I started out. So I studied it quite a bit before I started designing the PAR-2. The PAR-2 basically has several patents within it because the items that are patented had to be designed and made, <clears throat> pardon me, and made to work before uh, the PAR-2 could be put into any kind of use. And if uh, those devices worked, uh, okay, then we've got something to work on. So now we're on the process of uh, getting them out to the customers. Well, let's talk about that, actually, then. Um, kind of take the listeners through what is the power tube and what is it? what makes it different than other geothermal? Well, it doesn't use water. So I had to develop a technology which is called geomagmatic. Now, the word doesn't exist. I mean, not right now, anyway, in the dictionary. <clears throat> but if you look it up in the Internet or put it into Google, it will tell you that it's a new technology that I developed. Uh, basically, a geomagmatic is a technology that spots through satellite the hot spots on the Earth. And uh, what happens is you take the hot spots and you drill down with two-inch bits to the level where you hit 300 degrees. That's the temperature power tube works at. <clears throat> Once you do that, then you can estimate how many gigawatts per cubic kilometer you've got because the uh, satellite shots are 10 by 10 kilometers when they come out. Once you know that, you know how many power tubes you can put in without cooling things down. Um, that was the big danger of uh, trying to get heat. <clears throat> Second was a formula. The formula everybody's used, especially for geothermal, is a lineal formula, which means that uh, heat goes through one plate, goes through the rock, and then you measure how long it takes to get out the other side. But that uh, is okay for geothermal, but for the new technology, we have to use a quadratic formula. That is what I developed. And then what happens is if just think of an oven where you put a pie to bake. Uh, you put a pie to bake in the oven, and the, ever trans the, oven, uh, the air in the oven transfers the heat to the pie, and air is a very poor conductor of heat. So a rock is a much better conductor of heat around. So you have to imagine the area that has been chosen as one great big oven, and that's where you install your power tube. 
uh, there's two sections to it. One section is the process section, and the other is the heat absorption section. We'll start with the heat absorption section, and that's a separate uh, patent as well. It's called a geothermal riser. What the riser does is it has its own pump. Uh, it sends a, an oil down, which is a biodegradable and non-toxic oil, down through a coaxial system into where the heat is. As the oil gets down to where the heat is, it comes back up for the center tube. The center tube brings up hot oil. Now, the hot oil is transferred to a heat exchanger, and the heat exchanger contains uh, two uh, chemicals, isopentane and isobutane. These chemicals, once the heat hits them, are they're in liquid form, because they're under pressure, but once the uh, heat hits them, they turn into a very powerful gas, which drives the turbine. The turbine uh, is uh, matched through a shaft to the generator, and the generator generates the power. Then the gas, after it's generated, or after it's used for generation, goes up through the condensing system. It becomes liquid again, and the water or the liquid is then pumped back down into the heat exchanger. It's a cycle that continues, so it's a closed cycle, just like the uh, a thermal riser cycle is a closed cycle. So what you've got is two closed cycles generating power. So basically, yeah, I guess what that amounts to is it, it, I think one of the biggest things that I remember from looking at the animations and such that I really that really appealed to me is that you've kind of managed to make a, a geothermal effect with a much smaller footprint on the earth itself as in like these plants as far as like the buildings that are on, you know, that are on the surface are so much smaller than other power plants. I mean, I, I don't remember the dimensions offhand, but uh just for the sake of the audience, you know, um what would you say the average power to power plant size would be? 10 meters by 10 meters by 3 meters high. Wow. That that's like so much smaller than anything else that we normally stick on there. Now, you know what? What would you say as far as um, you know, in that amount of space, how much power could you generate as compared to the typical coal and other plants that we use now? Well, it really depends on the size of the power plant. The uh, the Texas McComb School of Business, University of Texas McComb School of Business, did a study for us some while back here, where they said our marketplace on the international market was one, five, and ten megawatts. Most of the countries that are in need of power don't have power lines, the distribution system. So the power tubes were originally built for the purpose of giving direct power to the source that needed it. However, they can be uh, attached to the regular power system or the uh, electric parks. What happens in this particular case, of course, is uh, that we can go almost anywhere, uh, and if we've got a ground reading that shows we can put a lot of power tubes in the area, then we can build up a lot of power as well. But 10 megawatts is sufficient for like 16,000 homes uh, or a major factory. And uh, that is quite a bit. Now, one thing that's very, very interesting about this whole thing, if you compare this to a hydrocarbon plant, let's say 10 megawatts for one year through a hydrocarbon plant, you are eliminating 400 tons of pollution to the atmosphere, and you're eliminating the consumption 
of over 1 million gallons of fuel that would power that generator for one year. Uh, that's equivalent to 1,240 tons of coal. So the elimination of the pollution to the atmosphere is quite large. There's no pollution to the ground, and there is no environmental pollution on the surface because the footprint's very small. Yeah, that's actually the the thing I think I found was most appealing. I guess, you know, you're talking about one power tube for 16,000 homes, so that's like, what, a small town or a city? Well, not, not larger than a town. You were talking about at least a city at that point. And, you know, obviously you could have more than one. Now, um, this could this technology, do you think, be sized down even further? I mean, like, if it came down to it, could somebody just get, like, a miniaturized version of this for their home, or is that overkill? Well, the problem with it is that you have to gauge that versus the installation cost. Right. And if, if you're putting a small unit in the ground in the, in the installation cost, because a 10-megawatt unit uh, is in the neighborhood of $8 million. Right. So the installation cost is going to be around uh, 800000 to a million, depending how far down your heat is. So if you take a 175-kilowatt unit, which would be enough for a home, what you're doing is spending $2 million on something that has a true value of around 600000 Right. So that's the reason we stuck to this level, because it's the economic level and it's the market level, the, the commercial market level. Now, I guess, you know, as you said, you could pretty much go just about anywhere, and the that pretty much allows you to put, build these things uh, anywhere in the world where energy is needed with no pollution. You know, you're not talking about a very big building at all. I mean, you could probably stick this thing, you know, in something the size of a parking lot, right? I mean, I'm not very good mm -hmm. at math, but... Yes, that's correct. It's uh, Let's see, that's 30 feet by 30 feet by about 10 feet high. Right, that's... that's smaller than in most parking lots. Um, yeah, that's, you know, when you look at it that way, you're, you're definitely dealing with something that could have a huge impact on the world without having a huge impact on, you know, the cities that, that you're building them in or uh, the communities that you're building them in. You're not going to require a lot of land out of them, you know, and I, I think that uh, it definitely sounds a lot more practical than some of the other aspects of geothermal that I've heard. Um, and I guess, uh, like, now that kind of brings me to my next question. I know that you've done a lot of traveling around. Uh, what is the reception that you've gotten so far for the power tube? It's re it's uh, tremendous. We have uh, basically today uh, letters of intent that total over 3 million, pardon me, 3 million, 3,009 units. Those are the letters of intent we've gotten and preparing contracts for about half of them. But uh, like in most places, I just uh, returned from Chile. Chile hasn't got any uh, uh, oils or hydrocarbons to power their plants. They just don't, don't make it. But they have tremendous amount of uh, uh, volcanic activity. They've got over 1,200 volcanoes all the way down the stretch. And we're looking at six of them that are being chosen for 10 megawatt units for the purposes of electrifying their railway from north to south. If that happens the way we feel, they're going to be saving 65% on their uh, operating budget. That's actually an excellent. And now, you were talking about, what was it, like $8 million to make one of these things? And that's correct, yes. Okay. Is that like a conservative estimate, or is that leaving some room for complications? Or That's, that's pretty conservative. Uh, the interesting part, if you want to trace, uh, trace it into gallons, mm -hmm. uh, 
I can't tell you where the bases are, but our government or our, or our DOD has bases in uh, uh, in a certain place where they have to fly the fuel in. Mm-hmm. By the time they've flown the fuel in, it costs them $60 a gallon. And what happens then is you and I, the taxpayer, pays for that. And they were just recently told by Congress in a hearing to find a way to cut uh, their budget because apparently they were using 40% of the energy that we have uh, in the U.S. So if you put a power tube in in a base like that, which is, let's say, a 5-megawatt unit, it draws it down to an equivalent of 19 cents a gallon, and that's a pretty big drop. That's a humongous drop. um, So... Basically, then, you know, $8 million is actually not that bad, you know, um, as compared to, you know, the kind of astronomical prices that I've heard for many other power plants, obviously, even including the alternative energy plants. Uh, And so basically, I think after looking at this, it almost seems like, you know, it's amazing to me that this technology has not gotten more attention, uh, you know, because it's it's kind of like a silver bullet in some ways to a lot of the problems that we've had with energy dependence on fossil fuels. Um, and I guess uh, now that you've you know gone this you've, you've been at this now. I mean, when would you say that you finished this invention, and how far have you come since you finished? Well, uh, I've been on it for 11 years, and we just finished uh, the final patents and some of the testing this uh, this year. As a matter of fact, we got the new uh, new patents lined up for the thermal riser, for example, which is a brand new. Highly efficient uh, unit. Other, it's different than the coaxial thing that we built, and uh, we've been able to uh, really. Uh, we've been trying not to get too much uh, work out there lined up for us because this is going to take the way it's going right now. It's going to take pretty large factory to start processing these things out. Well, I'm glad that you were able to get as far as you have, and I hope that more people you know, get an opportunity to see this technology in action as things develop. And I want to thank you again, Doyle, for being on the show today. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, um, oh, that was actually one more question I did have. This had to do with um, com- as compared to other geothermal systems. Now, there has been a concern in the past about geothermal uh, systems producing more seismic activity, like earthquakes and such. Uh, do you feel the power tube design will alleviate that? Yes, because it's not removing or cooling down the water. The water circulating and the heat is expansive. It's expanded, basically. And uh, when you drill down uh, uh, to create an aquifer supply source, what you're doing is you're drilling a hole into a hot area, then you're pouring cold water down it. When you do that, of course, it's got to explode, uh, go somewhere. And so the energy that's created by that cold water hitting the hot hot area is what uh, creates those seismic events. And there have been quite a few of them, actually, and nobody really wants to own up to them, but... There have been quite a few, and uh, where ours is very, very different, all we're doing is taking the heat that's being produced by the ground, and that's why we call it geomagmatic. That's awesome. I actually have a question here from one of the uh, from one of the audience. Uh, do most countries have suitable hotspots? Yes. Uh, here's the situation. Uh, most uh, geologists uh, from the ones university that I know will tell you. But if you go down to 7,500 feet, you're going to hit 600 degrees temperature. 
around the world. However, we need only 300 degrees to operate, so we don't have to go that far down. And many times ours is right on the surface. I'll give you an example. In Guatemala, we're getting ready to harness a volcano. The volcano, is, uh, as we have studied, has 350 gigawatts of energy. And what we're going to do is build an electric park with 110 megawatt units. That's 1,000 megawatts, which is almost half the energy the entire country uses. Wow. And, and the heat's only 800, 800 feet down. That actually sounds like to build a power plant under those circumstances would even be probably considerably cheaper, much less drilling and infrastructure. Would that be correct? Yeah, that's correct. You're, you're building a lot more at one time. The difference uh, with our situation also from uh, geothermal is that in a geothermal plant, you've got to look at the resource. You've got to see how long the steam is coming out. You let it blow for about a couple of weeks. And once you've done that, you can determine what the uh, uh, energy is that that's going to produce. And then you go out and design the plant for the resource. Of course, by the time you get the plant, it's going to be two and a half, three years later. In our situation, you get a hole in the ground in about 90 days. The uh, production of the unit's 90 days, so in eight months, you've got a, pardon me, in six months, you've got uh, a working power source. That's excellent. Um, actually, uh, there was another very common question that I got from the audience was, in the event that someone wants to help, you know, help you with this, like if they're like trying to pick what they should be studying in college to get involved with this technology, what would you recommend? Uh, geomagmatic technology, which is the study of heat sourcing on the Earth. Anything else? Uh, I guess uh, conversion, uh, conversion uh, of uh, different uh, types of liquids into uh, propelling heat sources. There's not too many of those, and a lot of them that were available before are prohibited now, so you can't use them. They were used to, like air conditioning fluids. They've changed all those. Uh, they've got about two that can be used at the moment. But uh, low temperature resource, the cooler you can make, uh, the cooler you can make this operate, uh, the bigger your uh, uh, property window is going to look like as far as how many you can get out and put in the ground. There's a question here, I guess, a bit more personal. What's your educational background? Uh, most of it's School of Hard Knocks <laughs> for 30 years. Uh, some university that, that I've gone to, I've gone to several universities, but always had this itch to put an international corporation together. So that put the international corporation together that uh, allowed me to design and build power plants around the world. Now, this this question's, I guess, kind of a um, ideological question. Once again, come from the audience. Would you consider yourself a social entrepreneur? I.e., do you do this for profit or because it's socially relevant? Well, I believe we all have a responsibility in the way that we live today. Uh, I'm going to give you an example. Look at the pollution we have today. Let's say that. World War One, World War Two, Vietnam War, all these areas where people are starving to death, uh, the smaller wars in Africa and that sort of thing. If suddenly these didn't exist and never happened, we would have more than twice the population today than what we've got. What would we do in that particular case to supply the energy the world needs? Well, look into 2020. 
that's exactly what's going to happen. We're going to have a world population just about doubling. So where are you going to get your energy? There really isn't any way to feasibly come up with that kind of energy, at least especially not if we've actually reached peak oil. Mm-hmm. Well, that's correct. So uh, to your question, to answer your question, I feel socially responsible for what I'm doing, and that's the reason that I separated myself from what I was doing into something that doesn't pay as much as what I was doing, that's not the point. The point is what can I do to make things better? No, that's excellent, actually. And it occurred to me is that you know you could probably make a lot of faster money if you were involved in the, the mainstream energy uh, systems that, you know, that have been going around. And I think that one of the things we discuss on this show frequently is that in some cases, it almost seems as though the the oil companies are trying to make sure that we we drag oil and coal out as long as we possibly can, so that they can get as much money out of it as possible before it comes to an end. But we've kind of come to a point where ecologically, we can only afford to do that for so long. Um, you know, profit aside, it, you know, what good is any profit if the planet that you're living on is not you know livable? <laughs> well, <laughs> writing that's checks quite- while you can't breathe. That's quite true. The biggest problem that most of those organizations have is the massive amount of manpower they've got working for them. Mm-hmm. And you would also have a huge problem with what to do with those people if these people, if the oil companies weren't working. But if they could find a way to cut the pollution completely from what they produce, I would be more apt to be, wow, saying this is really great that they even took this science. But I don't believe... Anybody in those organizations, well, maybe some, are socially conscious of really what part they're playing in the world pollution. Uh, Nobody wants to take a personal responsibility. Most people want to know what they're going to, what what their paycheck's going to look like. That's pretty much. I mean, I guess we've kind of been conditioned as a society to believe that that's what everything is. That's the bottom line, and then nobody's going to get involved in pollution until they can find some way to profit from cleaning it up. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. unfortunate, but that's in what we're always concerned about, particularly the people who listen to my radio show is, are we going to reach a point of no return ecologically? Are we going to get to a point where there is no cleaning it up, where we've just rendered the earth completely uninhabitable? And I think that particularly people who have distracted themselves with all the things that we tend to do rather than thinking about saving the planet that we live on, uh, they've kind of conditioned themselves to believe, well, that's someone else's problem. And they don't really think about the, the further implications of you know, what it is that they're doing, and, and especially when it comes to the kind of things that we throw our money at. You know, yeah, that's go ahead. correct. Uh, what I was going to say here, I'm going to give you an example of what's occurring. Mm-hmm. There are huge, but huge islands of plastic in the Pacific. Uh, they're miles long, miles wide, just huge. And there's a lot of marine life in there that's been killed thinking that was food or get caught in the nets that hang up also in that plastic. But that plastic becomes part of the food chain. It gets into the smaller fish. Uh, we just had a death of uh, 877 purposes uh, uh, right off the coast of Chile, uh, right across the uh, Peru. Mm-hmm. And just to give you an example of that type of thing, when plastics, they, they they dump their sewage directly into the into the water. When those uh, smaller fish absorb it, they are contaminated. Once the larger fish get it, sometimes, especially uh, 
the dolphins and whatnot that were killed down there, uh, they have pains in there like you and I would have in our stomachs, and they go up on the beach to relieve that pain. They don't want to move around. So when they get up on the beach and the tide's high, high the tide goes out, and guess what happens? They're stranded. Right. That's... And uh, we are all, right now, because of what's in the food chain, we all carry plastic in our system, though we like it or not. That's actually yeah an excellent example. Um, to the people who are listening right now, I'm actually planning on getting a filmmaker on in one of the future episodes of V Radio uh, for Plastic Planet. He made this film documentary that basically tackles what it is you're talking about, and it's really scary, especially when he goes out with that um, oceanographer who uh, basically just trolls the the ocean looking to see you know how much plastic is out there and. Uh, he points out just how much there is as compared to the plankton. The fish look at the plastic bits that come off of things and think that they're looking at plankton, and then they eat it, and then it's there for afterwards forever in our ecosystem. And mm-hmm. as you pointed out, it's it's a uh, from what I understand the kind of island of plastic under the oceans about the size of the state of Texas, and isn't showing any signs of going backwards. That's um, correct. And that's it's definitely one thing among many about just the different aspects that are just not sustainable uh, in regards to the way we do things. Um, most of the people who actually, and I'm getting these questions mostly because that's why a lot of people listen to my show. Uh, have you ever heard of the resource-based economy model, the concept of utilizing the scientific method to you know, basically design our culture in a way that utilizes science to its full effect? No, I really honestly haven't. I guess that's because I'm so tied down in what I do that uh be able to look over my shoulder or look uh, forward ahead and see what everybody else is doing kind of becomes a problem for me because then I drop what I'm doing in order to do that, and I really want to do a good job of what I'm doing. So I, I just hear these bits and pieces, and I absorb them, and if something drags me in that direction, then I'll, uh, I'll pick it up and I'll get... Uh, um, I'll, I'll get it in my system. Uh, that is basically the the way I pick up information. I know exactly what you mean. I have the same problem when I'm working on creative projects. I do creative writing projects and such, and um, I have to kind of stay focused. And if I don't, then um, I, I'll end up neglecting it. I'll get, you know, I'll, I guess ADD would be the term. You know, start looking at a bunch of other things. I guess the the one of the reasons why is that uh, the technology that you're describing would work perfectly in most of the things that you know we discuss here on the show. Is just the idea that, you know. Technology like yours for energy should be the mainstay of energy. We should be doing things like that, as this is how we get energy out of the earth, uh, rather than the things that we have been doing, which you know, are old old science. They might be more profitable because they're less efficient. <laughs> In mm-hmm. fact, they are more profitable because they're less efficient. And you know, just kind of take the same approach of like, you know, okay, we have a problem. Uh, you know, in this case, we're talking about energy. We solved the problem. You've solved a lot of the problems that are associated with geothermal energy. I think you've made it affordable. That's one thing that people have always complained about is that you know the infrastructure would be so huge. You know, you've made the the imprint of it smaller, which is another you know problem that we've been trying to solve. And uh, you, you kind of apply that same scientific method to everything. You know, if is there a poverty problem? Well, how do we go about solving that problem in a logical, rational way? Um, as opposed to electing politicians who are probably going to be in the pockets of whomever you know is you know willing to pay them the most, which of course mm-hmm. are going to be the people who are in a position to do so, not yeah. necessarily always have the best interests of Earth in mind. 
Um, and that, that's basically the principle behind it. You know, I guess uh, I, I look forward to hearing more from you as this this project develops, and I look forward to the hopefully seeing the you know a power, you know, power tube power plant. Um, have you gotten any of these things built anywhere? Is there anywhere anybody oh, yeah. can see them? Uh, we're we're our, our very first one is going into a very critical place, which is called Easter Island. Hmm. Uh, originally they were going to put windmills on Easter Island, and then they said, no, that ruins the whole landscape of the place. Then they're going to put uh, solar units out there, and they said, no, it takes up too much territory to supply the power we need, and we don't want these big things sitting out there um, you know, clouding up the ground that, that we need to use. And so they've uh, their generators are all like uh, World War II-type generators. That wow. Feeding, feeding with... Uh, Diesel fuel and cost a fortune to bring the diesel fuel uh, from Chile, which is 1,500 miles away. And uh, this is going to resolve the problem quite a bit. And then we've got the one in Guatemala we're working with, and we have some sample ones that we're getting prepared to put down so people can go take a look at them. But the biggest problem that we've always had is finance. And whenever we get involved in this situation and we need funds, always somebody shows up that says, okay, but I'll run the show. And when they want to run the show, what they want to do is take advantage of the new profit margin between our cost and the regular market price. Uh, they're not interested, basically, in what I'm interested in, which is basically reducing worldwide pollution. They just don't seem to want to even think about it. All they want to think about is that profit margin. So we've had about 15, oh, pardon me, 18 companies and organizations that have offered to finance everything, provided we do it their way, and it's just not going to happen. You know, the integrity that it shows, actually, that you're willing to make that statement actually is really inspiring, particularly with somebody who's an innovator. You know, there are so many inventions like yours that get purchased by the oil interests, like they'll purchase your patents and then they just sit on it. Supposedly, Mm -hmm. they've got thousands of patents that would uh, eliminate the internal combustion engine that they just kind of put away and make sure that nobody ever sees. You see a little bit of that in the the corporate warfare that was waged to prevent electric cars from becoming mainstream for the longest Mm -hmm. time. Uh, The battery battery patents purchased out by Texaco, of all people, and of course they just kind of sit on those patents. Um, you know, especially combined with technology like yours, electric cars would be considerably more viable. And I think, you know, the Easter Island thing, something, you know, kind of go back to that that I found a little ironic is that there are a lot of anthropological theories that the people of Easter Island died off because they were not conscious of their use of their own resources. That's exactly right. Yes. And the complications of that, you know, I think... That's something that uh, you know people on V Radio, like whether they're checking out the Venus Project, that's the the work I was talking about about the resource based economy. Jacques Fresco uh, developed the concept of the resource based economy model, but you know he talks about the fact that you often have a hard time trying to explain to people that we need to scientifically, intelligently manage the world's resources. But it's such a it's such a big planet that people always think that they'll be fine, and that's why. I usually have to kind of, like, I'll use a smaller scale example. Easter Island is certainly an example of what not to do, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, but when you bring modern technology into it, you know, if you can imagine trying to have a capitalist spaceship where one person owns the air and another person owns the fuel and another person owns the food and then they all get to fight each other for market share of these things that everybody (laughs) needs, you know, on board the spaceship, it would never happen. It you would know, never happen. No. Yeah, and that's and that's basically you know I have a friend actually who comes on frequently. Uh, his name's Doug Millett. He's an engineer who 
uh, worked with the space shuttle program, and he often refers to that same you know that same concept. If we were to develop a moon base, you know, it would be a resource-based economy. It would be an economy based on the resources that are available to the space crew. They wouldn't be you know trading stock mm-hmm. options and you know willy-nilly expending resources. You know, and I think that that's you know essential to why you know technology like yours is important to the world and. Um, I want to thank you for the work you're doing, and you know, um, if there's ever any news or anything that you want to bring up about this, please stay in contact with me. My listeners would be very interested in hearing about it. And uh, now there's a lot of people who have heard about the Power Tube worldwide thanks to this broadcast. Uh, I would want to say, first of all, um, go ahead and uh, give some information. If people want to learn more about the Power Tube, where should they go? Well, I just uh, we have. Uh, you can go to the. Uh, uh, our website, which is www.powertubeinc.com, mm-hmm. and uh, more recently, you can go to YouTube if you put down geomagmatic energy. Uh, there's been a whole series of articles that have been done on uh, power tube there, which you can find. Just geomagmatic power tube, it, you'll find out that there's a, a whole wealth of information you can pick up on, and it's even in foreign languages now. That's excellent. I mean, hopefully, um, you'd be. You know, I might be able to get an article out of you to go to the newsletter that we that we put out. You know, in, in the activist groups that I'm part of, it'd be great to be able to get this information. Um, our newsletter gets translated into 35 languages, um, so it'd be mm. you know interesting if we could get some information from you or maybe reprint one of your existing articles with your permission, um, sure. because this is honestly the the best design and most feasible design for geothermal that I've heard about so far. And I'm by no, by no means an expert but we do talk about alternative energy quite a bit. So um, thanks again for being on today, Doyle. Um, and uh, once again, you know, stay in touch. I'm kind of a member of the alternative media, and uh, the things that you're talking about I think should be on the cover of Popular Mechanics. They should be, you know, talked about on CNN. They should be everywhere. But, you know, um, and until then, I guess you're just going to have to settle for some dedicated, independent people like me. <laughs> yes, that's quite true. Well, we do what we can without selling out. I'll tell you that. No, that's awesome. So, um, thanks again, and you know, thanks again also for restoring my faith in humanity. When you said that, you know, there have been companies that have offered you all kinds of money to do this their way, and you said no, um, that's a big boost for me for sure. To hear, you know, somebody who has the you know, has that ability, and you know, can keep themselves together amidst the pressure that people often feel. You know, um, hopefully, you know, a hundred years from now, people will be looking back on this and being thinking, "Man, I mean, wonder why they didn't have power tubes set up all over before they were going into you know, other countries to take their oil, or you know, you know, blowing up mountains and destroying things for their coal, or hydraulic fracking, or any number of the ridiculous things that we've been doing and continue to do, you know, even in the supposedly civilized United States." <laughs> yes, absolutely, I agree. Thanks again, Doyle, for being on V-Radio. You bet. Thank you for your call. I appreciate it very much. Excellent. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in, everyone. Um, this has been an episode of V-Radio. If uh, you it's your first time listening to V-Radio, please visit my website, v-radio.org. Um, there you will listen to you – know, you can find archives of more shows like this one about different types of alternative energy and alternative technologies, including interviews with activists, documentary filmmakers, and essentially being an alternative media. Thanks again. And I'll leave you with some words from Jack Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jack Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.
you still